Yeah, we believe the Bible is the Word of God. That's why we have it open and read every week. We believe this is faithfully taught that God speaks to us because His Word is living and active. And today we are in Ephesians 6, Sentences 1 to 4. I'm in the screen behind me, but Ephesians 6, Sentences 1 to 4. This is God's Word. It says this. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. This is the Word of God. Well, good afternoon and welcome. I'm Jeremy. I'm one of the leaders. And uh, this is week three of our series called Sex, Gravity and the Glory of God. And it's uh, been great to get stuck in here. The first week, if you are with us, we looked at um, our marriage and how Jesus brings gravity to that. Last week, we looked at how the, the, the biblical understanding of marriage gives clarity to dating. Uh, and this week, we expand on that as we look into the biblical vision for family. Uh, and I am... My hope really as we go through this is that whether you are hoping one day to have kids or whether you are right now parents, that you would be, that you would be encouraged. That you would hear what God has to say about these things and then it would encourage you. Because if there's one thing that's fair to say about parenting life, it's that it has very high highs and very low lows. And, uh, and the, the difference between them can be dizzying. Let me kind of explain in this way. This week, this week with the kids... We had a great sort of family moment. They got stuck into a, a show, you know, a bit heady and intellectual. It's called Ninja Warrior. And, um, and it's just good, just wholesome viewing. There's just not much to it. It's an obstacle course that people have to get through. It's pretty incredible what they do. But, like, but watching it with kids is next level because they, they, they ride the ups and downs of it just every step of the way. They are so into it. They're like, they're like throwing their hands in the air. They're slapping the couch. They're just riding ev- the wave of every emotion through it. And they got so G'd up after watching it that we went out to the park for them to then test their skills. And so they were just nigh on serious injury the whole time. But they were loving life. They were running up the hills and stuff. They were saying, Dad, this is the best afternoon ever. And they were like, Dad, you should go on Ninja Warrior. You'd be so good at it. I was like, oh, yeah. I mean, yeah, probably. But like, yeah, <laughs> guys, come on. Anyway, but we just, we just had such a great afternoon. I was like, you know what? This family life doesn't get much better than this. But then wind the clock back a little bit. And, uh, and there was a period, a long period, about three months. And, uh, and it, people who were in our small group, our missional community at that time, it has been... It has been absolutely foundational for them. A lot of them have kids now, and they look back to this time as the kind of the warning for them with parenting. One of our kids, who shall remain nameless, decided that they loved us so much that they didn't want to just see us during daylight hours. Uh, They wanted to see us throughout the night as well, from anywhere between one to five hours of the night. One day, they woke up at 2.30 a.m., and that was it for the day. The day started at 2.30 that day. And I remembered... Well, after three months of this, and it was every night from at least 11 through to 3 or sometimes 5 or whatever. And at one point, like I was so tired and so just, I don't know what to do. I felt like crying, but I just couldn't. And I remember just sitting there just thinking like, I don't know how much longer I can keep doing this. The highs are so high and the lows can be so low. Parenting can really push you to the very, your very mental limits. And at the same time, it can be incredible. 
I mean, seeing a new life, the only newly originating life in the universe made in the image of God, and think, I was actually a part of making that. It's a mind-blowing experience. And then the flip side is, it can just push, push you to the very edge of what you can handle. And the reason that the gospel then matters is what parents really need most is not good advice, but good news. The problem with good advice, as helpful as it can be, is that half the time when you get it, you're like, that is so helpful. Could you just email that to a year ago? What you need often as parents is not just good advice that reminds you of all the things you didn't do at the right time, but good news that says no matter what's happened, God is a God who can redeem and who can change and transform. And so my hope is that this morning as we look into God's Word, what you'll see is good news. That you'll see God's vision for family and how amazing it is and how much gravity it has, but also to understand that none of it makes sense unless you get the gospel first. Unless you get the good news of Jesus, unless that is foundational and that is the thing you hold on to first and foremost, the rest of it is almost meaningless. And so I'm going to pray that we would see exactly what God would want us to see this morning as we look at his word. Let's pray. Father God, we praise you that you are an everlasting and good God. That you don't leave us as orphans in the world. You give us your word and your spirit to understand who you are. And you teach us like children. That you reveal yourself to be our heavenly father. The one who adopted us into your heavenly family. The one who saved us, has loved us with an everlasting love, and who continues to love us all the way to that day when you will draw us home forever. And Father, we pray as we open your word this morning that you would reveal yourself, and this for your glory. Amen. Well, the starting point for the passage that Gav read out before, which is Ephesians 6, is actually a little bit before that. The context for it is what we looked at last week, starting in Ephesians 5, 25 and beyond. So let's kick off there. In Ephesians 5, 25, we read this concerning marriage. It says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. In the first week in marriage, we saw that the starting point is Jesus. When we looked at dating, we saw that the starting point is Jesus. And guess what? In family, the starting point is Jesus. Paul here in this section says, as he describes marriage, that really he says, I'm referring to Christ and the church. The marriage, when it goes well, is meant to be just a small illustration of the faithful, persevering love of God. God didn't look down and see that humans were marrying and thought, hey, that's not bad. That's a decent picture of how Jesus loves the church. No, we're told that he created it so that there'd be something physical that he could point to, to be like, look, in a small way, That kind of reflects how Jesus has loved the church. The command to the husbands there is to say, when you love your wives, you love like Christ did when he died for you on the cross. When he died for your sin, your your love for your wife is meant to be a dim reflection of that. And so this really is our starting point. The starting point for the family is the gospel story. 
And it's so important that you get that first and foremost because without that, you won't understand the whole rest of the story. The gospel story is this, that I'm a sinner, that I deserve to face the wrath of God, and instead, Jesus came down and stood in the breach for me and bore my sin and died in my place. He rose again to defeat sin and death, and now he offers indestructible life to anyone who believes in him. But I was so much a sinner and so caught up in my sin that I wouldn't have even accepted his offer. So he sends his Holy Spirit into my heart to change my heart that I might respond in faith and trust him. And this is my story now, that I've gone from a sinner to someone who is saved by the sheer grace of God, and he has secured my final home with him forever. So no matter, no matter what happens in this life, my final point will be rest with him forever and his people for all time. He will wipe away every tear from every eye. He will redeem and reconcile all creation to himself. That is the story that I am defined by. And it wasn't one that I wrote for myself. It's the sheer grace of God from end to end. And it matters that that is the main story by which you understand your life and yourself because otherwise things will come unstuck fast. We bring many stories into family life, don't we? Your story might be, I'm a winner. You'd never say that to people, obviously, but in your mind, from primary school through to high school and beyond, you've just done well at things. Whatever you've put your hand to, sport, academically, things have gone pretty well for you. And what you expect is that marriage and family life will be another succession of success stories. And that's going to impact your marriage, isn't it? Even if, even if your story for yourself is the flip side, you're like, you know what, I'm a, to be honest, I'm a loser. And I come from a long line of losers and a long line of messed up families. And so I expect if I ever get into that situation where I'm married and I have kids, I'm going to mess that up too because I'm a loser who who creates losers. Or even if it's a combination of the two. You're like, I was a successful person and now marriage isn't really turning out how I thought it would and that can't be my fault because I'm a winner so someone else in this marriage must be a loser. Or the flip side, you might be like, well, I was a loser, but I thought that once I got married, I'd be one of those people who had it all together and I'd be a winner in life. Any which way you cut it, stories that are not the gospel story are going to bring destruction to marriage and family life. My story is I'm a sinner saved by grace and my eternal home is secured because of Jesus and nothing I did. And that is the main thing that is true about my life and self. That's the starting point. Because that, no matter what happens in family life, is our reason for hope and identity and meaning. That's what sustains us. And so we need to get that solid first as we dive into God's design for family. Because that is the engine room, the gospel. Without that, we're not going to understand any of the rest of it. But God's design for family starts all the way back in Genesis 1, where we looked on in the first week. In Genesis 1, 26 to 28, we read this. Then God said... Let us make man in our image after our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. God's plan is to fill the world, his world, with image bearers, people made in his image, worshipping him. That's the end plan. And the, the way that he has designed men and women to be a part of this is in the covenant of marriage for them to be a one flesh sexual union 
that then creates the only newly originating life in the universe that lives forever. That's the plan. That's how he's decided to do it. And the first thing that we can take from this then is that children are a gift. Children are a gift and a blessing. And you might think, well, does that even need to be said? But I think oftentimes things that don't need to be said need to be said. Think of it, I was reminded of this when I saw, there was an ad that won a bunch of awards years ago, and it was, a, it was just a classic scene in a supermarket with a toddler aged three or four just going nuclear and, like, and doing one of those public embarrassing tantrums that just mortifies the parent. And the parent is just frozen with fear and guilt and whatever else while everyone in the supermarket is pretending that this kid is not the biggest thing that's going on around. So the kid is just going off, throwing things, all this kind of stuff. There's no words in the ad, no music. There's just a kid going nuts and then it kind of fades to blur and then the logo for a condom brand comes up. And you get, the, the, you get the joke, right? The idea is this is what can prevent that. Now, it's not the case that every culture around the world would find that ad funny. There's a reason why we do. The way we understand sex is primarily as a matter of personal self-expression. But you can only see sex in that way if there are a bunch of technological and sociological and economic factors or changes behind that. The way that we came as a culture to view sex as completely separate from commitment, marriage, family, procreation, is because of a series of changes. It's propped up on a bunch of technological and cultural changes. In the same way, my kids on, uh, on Saturday were, I can't even remember how it came up, but they were talking about the idea that, um, something about the idea of like, you know, eating food and like the fact that like they said something like we don't we don't kill cows though and their their grandfather quite astutely just pointed out that they were eating a beef sausage and you're like what do you think that is and it was you know he's very tactful like that right <laughs> but um without trying to wade into the whole debate around that it was funny that a kid would be like this has nothing to do with a, a cow actually being killed and you can only say that because there's a bunch of technological and cultural developments that kind of separate you or have abstracted meat on your plate from an actual animal. In the same way, the only way you can really view sex as mainly about my personal expression is on this side of a sexual revolution with all kinds of technological changes behind it. That's why we view things this way. But the Bible says that's not the design. And if you look hard enough, it's kind of clear that that's not the design. That's why sex is so good at connecting people and why it's so difficult after it to disentangle yourself from someone completely. And it's also the reason that children are a gift. They're not the accidental byproduct of a sexual connection. They're actually part of it. And they're bound up with the idea of commitment and marriage and covenant and all of that is meant to bring meaning to sexuality. Children are actually a blessing. But the other thing that then needs to be said is that children will not fix your marriage. See, it is the case that children are a blessing. And one of, the, one of the painful things about not being able to have children, if that's something that you're trying at the moment, is that it's, you really feel the brokenness of this world. When our bodies are not doing what they're supposed to be doing, it's a painful thing because it's right. Children are a blessing. But we can go the other extreme and think that really our end point is to have kids that's going to fix everything. If my life is kind of 
not going how I thought it was, or I just feel a bit stuck or bored, that we're going to have kids and that's going to change everything. It's going to become meaningful and, and a great story for us all to be involved in. And it's not the case either. We need to be grounded in the gospel. That is the story that brings meaning and identity to life. And that's what helps us to be good parents and to steward our families. Children are a blessing, but they will not fix your marriage. If there are problems in your marriage, if anything, kids put pressure on those things and cracks become fissures, become chasms. If you are in the stage where you're married, you're in the dinks stage, you've heard that before, double income, no kids. You know, okay, so that's a freebie. Um, But if you are in that phase, can I encourage you that now is the point I wish to put Jesus at the center of your marriage. Because it's, it's the kind of get away with it phase. There's, there is so little financial and time pressure on your marriage, you can kind of get away with just sort of half doing marriage. But I'd have to say, when you have kids, it's game time from then. And I would say, rather than seeing it as a time to make the most of all those freedoms, to say, this is the time to really prepare and to put Jesus at the center of our marriage so that when we have kids, we thrive rather than sink. Just as a little, as a little thought. But the other thing is, well, this is the family unit. And so the question becomes, well, then what is the command specifically to parents about how to navigate this space? And that's what brings us to Ephesians chapter 6, in the section that Gav read out to us before. In Ephesians 6, 1 to 3, we read this. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. The first thing here is that children are to obey their parents in the Lord. This means that parents are not the ultimate authority. He's saying here, children, obey your parents in the way that God has commanded you to. And as a parent, that means that you're not the ultimate authority. You are an ambassador. You are exercising authority on behalf of someone else. You're to do it in the way that he commands. God has appointed you as an ambassador for him over your family. You are the primary representative to your family of God. You're meant to reflect His nature, His love, His authority to them. And because we are ambassadors and not owners, it means a couple of things. It means that as a parent, there are things about having kids that you just don't get to choose. You don't get to choose what type of personality they have. You don't get actually ultimate control about how they turn out in the end. You cannot control all those circumstances. We are not owners, we're ambassadors. And this is liberating because parents who think they can control every single outcome are a burden to their kids. We need to remember that we're ambassadors. It says, children, obey your your parents in the Lord. He is the ultimate authority. And so that means that you're to exercise authority on his behalf in a good way. You're to forgive like God forgives. You don't hold things over your kids and keep bringing it up again and again and again just to batter them or manipulate them. When you forgive, you forgive like God forgives. It's done and it's finished. It means you're unbiased. Do you know that the the child that is most like you will get the most attention from you, either for better or for worse? Either they'll be the kid that you favor the most because you think pretty well of yourself, or they will remind you of all the things you don't like about yourself and you'll be extra hard on them. In fact, if you haven't worked out yourself before God, what you will tend to do is all the things that you haven't brought before God or the things you've been harsh with yourself about, you'll pour out on your kid. And as an ambassador, you're called not to exercise authority like that, to be unbiased, to not preference one child over another, but to be fair, 
to not rely on ever-increasing threats, but to love them in such a way that they will trust you and know that you are for them and for their good. You're to love like him. But being an ambassador also means that you're not God, which means you can do things and will need to do things like apologize to your kids. That's something that God never has to do, and yet we do. It is an incredible demonstration of the gospel for a parent to be able to apologize to their kids. I remember, it was, I've never had to apologize to my kids, but Mel's made a lot of mistakes <laughs> in a time. But there was this one time where I thought, you know, I better just for illustration's sake do it. Um, but I'd been, I'd been irritable with our eldest. I'd been just, and I was just over the top harsh with him. And, um, and afterwards, after I cooled down, after my self-righteous anger, I went back up to him. I said to him, look, Ashton, I'm so sorry that I, was, that I acted that way. A dad, a dad shouldn't act like that toward his son. And he said, yeah, dad, that was pretty heavy. I said, just, you know, learn how to take an apology, right? A, I don't want to ramp this up again, right? Anyway, but that's a whole other art form. But it was, it was a profound moment for us to be able to, for, him to be able to, for me to be able to apologize for the way that I acted, to demonstrate, to say God doesn't act like that toward us. I wasn't a great ambassador in that moment. And there are going to be many, many more moments like that. It says, children, obey your parents in the Lord. They are not the ultimate authority. But you are also the primary appointed authority for them to raise them up. And authority is actually good from parents when it's, ex- when it's exercised rightly and in a fair and just way like God does. It's actually for their good. Did you see what it said in there? So this is the only commandment that comes with a promise, that it may go well with you in the land. When parents exercise authority in a good way towards their kids, it actually helps the child to flourish. It's a blessing. And this needs to be said because we live in an age that is, it's fair to say, is reasonably anti-authoritarian. We're cynical about authority. We're skeptical about authority. And we tend to incline away. We don't even particularly like the word. We don't like people having authority over us. And if they do, we'd prefer if they were a bit subtle about it. But the truth is, authority is actually good. When it's, when, it's, when it's exercised rightly, it is a blessing rather than a curse. And it's not something as parents to be avoided. You're called to do it in a good way. Uh, one, one psychologist, and whatever you uh, think of him, uh, Jordan Peterson put out a book called 12 Rules for Life. And, uh, and so sticking to his field on psychology, he writes one thing about parenting that's worth paying attention to. He, he writes this, It is an act of responsibility to discipline a child. It is not anger at misbehavior. It is not revenge for a misdeed. It is indeed a careful combination of mercy and long-term judgment. Proper discipline requires effort. Indeed, is virtually synonymous with effort. It is difficult to pay attention to children. It is difficult to figure out what is wrong and what is right and why. It is difficult to formulate just and compassionate strategies of discipline and to negotiate their application with others deeply involved in a child's care. Because of this combination of responsibility and difficulty, any suggestion that all constraints placed on children are damaging can be perversely welcome. Such a notion, once accepted, allows adults who should know better to abandon their duty to serve as agents of enculturation and pretend that doing so is good for children. It's a deep and pernicious act of self-deception. If there's too many long words in there, what he's saying is this. When someone says to you, look, kids are basically good, they'll work it out on their own, rules are bad for them, just try and stay out of the way, 
because it's hard to actually exercise authority in a just and compassionate manner, we are sinfully inclined to be like, you're right, I should just step out of this game. And it's not good for the kids. Every Disney movie from the late 80s to the early 2000s was basically the same message. Over-controlling parents, just let your kids go free. And then all of that generation rose up to, to create films that were like, where were our parents, right? So it's, <laughs> it's interesting to watch as a culture because the truth is that as cynical as we are about authority, when it's exercised rightly, it's good. Parents, you are the main authority in your children's lives and you're meant to be there and to do it and to pay attention to them and to come up with just and compassionate strategies to exercise authority over them. And it's going to mean that sometimes you'll be unpopular with them and you've got to be okay with that. But actually your no has got to mean no. You're going to have to put your foot down sometimes. And you're meant to reflect God in that way. It's possibly the case that many people who grow up thinking that God, if he really does exist, probably isn't that much of a thing to, to pay attention to is because they grew up with parents who were constantly counting to three, only to count to five, only to count to ten after that, and there were no consequences ever. And it wasn't for their good. This is why it says, children, obey your parents and it will go well for you. Authority, when it's exercised rightly, is a good thing. It's a blessing. Children, obey your parents. You are the primary authority. Notice it doesn't say children obey your teachers, though they should. Children obey your grandparents, though they should. Children obey your nanny or your au pair. No, it says children obey your parents. You're meant to be there. And so as you think about parenting, can I urge you not to give away your authority to others too quickly? The journey of parenting is over time gradually release, raising up your kids to release them from your care so that they'll be grown adults who, Lord willing, follow Jesus, but are responsible grown-ups. And it's a process of letting them go over time. But I would urge you not to do it too quickly. It says, children, obey your parents. You are the main authority figure in their life, and you need to be there. And as much as it's up to you, and it may not be, you may not have custody of them. There may be any, any number of other circumstances where it is not up to you. But as much as it is up to you, to be as present as you can be because you are the main ones appointed to care for your children. So that's the first one. Children, obey your parents. But the second principle we see here is this. In, in Ephesians 6.4, look what he says. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. The point here is that you want to raise these children up. You want them to eventually grow up. You are not aiming to have them still at your house mooching your food when they're 45 and still you know, playing video games in, in your place and inviting their friends around. You really don't want that. There aren't many parents who are like, that is my vision for parenting. <laughs> now, there is a kind of sick parenting that inadvertently or advertently where parents don't want their kids to ever leave for whatever reason. But that is not the biblical principle. The principle is you want to raise them up. You are actually, you're hoping that they're going to get out of your house and that that's a good thing. You're aiming at them leaving, not prematurely, but at the right time. You're looking to raise them up. And the principle that goes with this is that you never want to do for your kids what they can do for themselves. The way to keep them down is to do for them what they are fully capable of doing for themselves. The way to raise them up is to never do for them what they are able to do for themselves. 
And that sounds really easy and obvious. And you think, well, if that's, if that's the case, I mean, why would anyone ever do something for their kids that they couldn't do for themselves? There's one very simple reason. It's quite difficult. Let me give you just a classic example. In our house, our kids are seven, six, and almost four. After dinner, it looks like there has been some kind of a, like a tribal massacre across our, our dining table. And at the end of that time, it would take my wife and I probably two minutes to clear it all up. And it would take our kids, you know, through to maybe through the next year, if not the year after. And because of that, your inclination is just to do it yourself. Because the hard thing to do is to sit with them to teach them how to clear all the stuff up, to set routines and habits and to do it over and over again, to pay attention to how they're growing and keep increasing their responsibilities as they get older. It takes attention and focus and time and all these things. And often the easier thing is just to say, we'll put the the TV on so you don't make any noise and we'll go clean things up. But the principle here is to raise them up. You don't want them to be kids forever. You actually want them to grow up. And so it means really managing these two things of responsibility and freedom. That as time goes on, you want them to grow in responsibility. And as they are more responsible, you give them more freedoms. I was able to have a chat with our kids about this recently when they were talking about a kid from their class was flying by themselves overseas to visit grandparents. And that blew their minds and mine. (laughs) But I I got to thinking about it. I was like, well, look, if a kid kid is being responsible, is able to manage these things, and I'm I'm sure there are ways of doing this sort of thing, then it is the case that as they get older and more responsible, we want to give them more freedoms. And so we started talking about things like like TV time. And And I said to them, I was like, look, we, we want to love you guys, and as you grow more responsible, we want to give you more freedoms, but you need to show us that you're able to handle those. So when it comes to TV, the reason we switch it off is because we don't think you're ready yet to decide how much TV you can watch. Because ultimately, if you watch too much of it, it's not going to be good for you. And on that point, they actually conceded. They were like, you're right, Dad. I was like, this, this will never happen again. Someone take a photo of this moment. But the, the principle that I wanted to explain to them is that we want them to, to enjoy more freedoms, but they need to grow in responsibility in order to enjoy them properly. Even reading an article in the Sydney Morning Herald, they were saying there were, there were three, three factors, three factors that, are, that, were, um, that were common in kids who sort of grew up capable and able to handle themselves. And two of them are unsurprising, and one of them is a little surprising. The first two are pocket money and chores. Kids who grow up with that, tend to develop a kind of responsibility. The third one was, which is interesting, is domestic holidays. Why domestic holidays? They're saying if you go on these big international holidays, you're always going sightseeing, you're always going to unfamiliar environments, so you keep your kids as close as possible. And so when you're on a domestic holiday, you tend to go to the same place every year, and this is what people used to do, same place every year, different one, Easter and Christmas maybe, but same spot all the time. You get familiar with it, and you start to let the kids just roam free. And they get all this independent playtime where they get to work things out. You give them enough freedom within safe bounds to actually start working things out. And that was reassuring because we certainly can't afford to go on an international <laughs> holiday anytime soon. But also I was reaffirming that, yeah, we are called to raise kids up, to try and give them freedom, to, to let them feel the consequences of their actions at times because God has created a world that has moral consequences. And when they don't get those, to provide consequences so that they'll know and be wise in how they navigate things. We're called to raise them up. 
And that also means that as parents, that your job is not to turn the world into a giant jumping castle where they never feel the keen edge of a broken world. This world is dangerous. Jesus has not come back yet. They need to be wise in how they conduct themselves. And it's a blessing as a parent because you, really, if you're honest, you know that you can't make the world safe for them. The first time I realized that I could never really protect my kids from bullying, it was a shock for me. I'm like, I, it's really the case. I mean, there'll be times as a parent where you'd need to intervene if things got so bad. But ultimately, I, I can't organize things so that that will never happen. My job as a parent is to develop a relationship with them so that they trust me. So when those things happen, we can talk and pray about it. That I might be able to lead them through how Jesus dealt with when he was unfairly treated. That he prayed for his enemies and those who persecuted him. And to point them to the grace of Jesus that's enough to get them through. That's our job rather than turning the world into a jumping castle for them. We can't do that. Raise them up, it says. But he also says raise them in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. You need to have a biblical vision for how you see your kids growing up. Something that you can point to and explicitly talk to them about. When I was a youth pastor, and it wasn't the case for every set of parents, but generally... You would only, there were only two times in the life of a teenager where you would get a phone call. One time was when they'd gone off the rails and the parents wanted you to fix them up. They're doing whatever it is that they shouldn't be doing and they're hoping that you can do something about it. So that was one time when they weren't being Christian enough. The other time you'd get a phone call was when they were being too Christian. They were just getting too involved in youth group. And what I started to realize was that maybe, I don't know if it was wittingly or unwittingly, that many parents who call themselves Christian really had a vision for their kids that was mainly that they would be non-delinquent and sort of middle-class, upwardly mobile. And that is not a very compelling biblical vision. It was really just a vision that they'd absorbed from those around them. The reason it matters that you would have a clear vision about what kind of child you're trying to raise that is twofold. One is that if you aim at nothing, you tend to hit it. And the second is so that we would be able to encourage them towards something rather than just warn them away from something. And so I sat down with our kids, and this was, this was my attempt. I said, I'm going to write you guys, like, and they've been harassing me about it because I haven't got it done yet. So I'll write you a little book, and it kind of blew out, and I can't draw, so whatever. Anyway, <laughs> but I wanted to give them a vision based on the life of Jesus and the Bible that we'd been reading through, which was the Action Bible. You should get it. Jesus Passover was obviously cutting season because he is absolutely shredded. On the cross, he's just got wings that you wouldn't believe. So you just get it just for that. It's amazing. Uh, and Harper does call it the scary Bible because when you get to Revelation, it gets wild. Anyway, but looking at the life of Jesus, I wanted to show them from his life what it means to be a strong man or woman. And so this is what I came up with. It's on the slide there. Strong men and women can admit a mistake. When you start with the gospel, it's admitting I'm a sinner and I need help. So you guys can admit a mistake. Strong men and women trust God's word. When Jesus was tempted in the desert, what did he say? Man does not live off bread alone, but off the very words of God. Strong men and women love God more than what others think about them. Jesus didn't say things to be liked. He told the truth. Strong men and women speak the truth even when it's not popular. Strong men and women know when to obey authority, Jesus paid taxes to Caesar, and when to disobey authority. When they told him what was against the word of God, he would not obey. Strong men and women do what's right even when no one else does. Strong men and women weep 
When Jesus was confronted with the death of Lazarus, a dear friend, he knew that at a funeral is the right time to weep. And anyone who doesn't is not right. Strong men and women know how to weep. And this is one differentiation. Strong men, and women feel, uh, make, strong men make women feel safe and not threatened, and strong women are not impressed by foolish men. In the story where the woman who is known to be a sinner comes into a group of religious men and they're all talking about her, Jesus criticizes the lot of them and upholds her as an example of faith. Strong men and women use strength to serve and not dominate. And strong women, men and women aren't always strong. To remind them that in the end, they're still going to sin and make mistakes. And drawing on the story of Peter, a guy who was so sure that he would stand up for Jesus, and then at the crucial moment he didn't, and yet Jesus forgave him and restored him. Right after this section in Ephesians, it says, Be strong in the Lord. I want them to know this is what it looks like to be strong in the Lord. That now I have a clear and compelling vision. And if you are parents, the question, the question I was going to ask is, if you want that for your kids, are you that vision? But then I thought, well, technically, because it's based on the life of Jesus, unless you literally are Jesus, the answer is no. So to flip it around, do you want that vision? Or in short, do you want to be like Jesus? I want to be a dad like Jesus. He wasn't a dad, but he was a perfect example. Jesus was the kind of man who soldiers feared him, and yet kids loved him. That's a pretty good combination. You want to be like Jesus. Cast this vision for your kids of what it means to be strong in the Lord. Because that, then you can do the next part of the passage. When it says, uh, did you notice it there? It said, don't provoke your kids to anger. Instead, raise them in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So don't just, wet, don't just be down on them. Don't just be negative to them. Don't just tell them when they're stepping out of line. For kids, encouragement is like rocket fuel. Have you ever seen a kid like just, you know, wobbling on their bike around? And if you say to them, you're so good at riding them, you watch them go. They will ride through time, right? They just, they just thrive on encouragement. And there's a, there's a caution here. Don't, make, don't provoke your kids to anger. In Colossians, it says, don't, don't make your kids discouraged. Don't wear them down with constant negativity and henpecking and don't do this and don't do that. There are times to do that. But in short, you want to give them a compelling vision of what it means to follow Jesus and why that is so good and why it is that this isn't going to lead in that direction. Raise them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. But there is one thing that I glossed over quickly, and I don't know if you noticed it. Because it says in that section, don't provoke your kids to anger, raise them in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. But it starts with fathers. It says fathers don't do that. Why? I think it's an ancient through to modern day propensity for men and fathers to underfunction in the family unit. I think it was a temptation then and it is now. And there is, I think, reason for it. That often it's the case that men feel like bench players when it comes to parenting. Often it's the case that in the first five years of life, kids are particularly attaching to both parents, but mum in particular. And as a dad, you can feel a little bit like a bench player. And oftentimes that means that dad isn't ready to get in the game. It reminded me of a game I saw, some highlights from a Tottenham game at the end of the, the Premier League season where um, it, was a, it was a crucial game. They needed it in order to sort of be in the top four, which is Champions League football. And, um, and in order to get an advantage, they brought on a super sub. And the super, I don't know if he was just overstimulated from being on the bench for too long or whatever, 
But he came on the field with just, just too much in the tank. And within two minutes, had like hit a guy with a double foot challenge and was red carded straight away and sent back to the bench. So within five minutes, the whole thing took less than five minutes. He was on and then back off again. And everyone was just like, what were you doing? Do you know what? That is a pretty good illustration of how many dads operate, right? Do you imagine the family? Mum's starting to feel a bit exhausted, overwhelmed. She calls dad in off the bench. He comes in way too hard and gets red carded and sent back to the bench. And it's not just dads in general. It's this dad in particular. We were away on holidays and in the water, we're in the water, serene, Jarvis Bay, couldn't be more perfect. What a great opportunity to be a family on a domestic holiday. We're doing everything right. And, uh, and one of our kids, they're tired because they've been at the beach all day, and he's losing it. He's being disrespectful to mum. So you know, I get my swagger on, I step into the situation, and I start gentle like a dad should, and like, you know, don't speak like that, da, da, da. and he's just screaming in my face. I'm like, right, that's it, DEFCON 5. I just pick him up, and you're out of the water, and that's it for the rest of the day. And Mel kind of gently sort of stepped into the situation, and then I sort of physically stepped out. And afterwards, we, we kind of laughed about the fact that, I just got benched. I, just, I, didn't have, I didn't have enough for the game and I had to get subbed out. But there is a reason for it. Often it's the case, often, usually the case, that just in terms of sheer number of hours, mum has had more time with the kids, knowing their personalities, trying different strategies of discipline and speaking with them. And so if you think of it, often when, when she opens her parenting toolkit, She's got a full 400-piece Sid Chrome set, right? So if this one doesn't work, she's got another sort of setting or fitting. Dad opens his one, and all he's got is a screwdriver and a hammer. And so he tries the screwdriver, and if that doesn't work, it's hammer time, right? <laughs> and that was what I did. I was like, I tried softly, like, oh, you know, you know, like, you shouldn't speak like that. All right, that's it. You're out of here, right? And so it is the case that in some ways, Dad's things are stacked against you, being the kind of involved, engaged parent who's raising your kids in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And so you're going to need to catch up. And the really sad thing about this one is that in one book on raising boys by a guy called Steve Bidoff, not a Christian guy, it says for the first five years of life, particularly for boys, they'll often be connecting with mum. So dad feels a bit like a bench player. But then at five, it switches over. And we've noticed this with our two eldest boys as well. And they start to look for, to dad a little more. And the problem is, if he's spent five years on the bench, sometimes by five, he's kind of quit the team. He's out of it in terms of parenting. He's got nothing there at just the moment when he's a starting forward. And so I'd encourage you, dads, to get in the game, to be spiritually present in your families. And that's going to mean reading things. It's going to mean talking with your wife constantly about things, knowing your kids, so that when you step in, it's not with a double-foot Kevin Musket challenge, but instead that you are actually able to be present and raise them in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. That you're not the kind of dad who just provokes his kids to anger, who always comes in heavy-handed, who's always putting his foot down because he hasn't read the situation right. That you'll be a dad who lovingly is present in your family life, who's strong and kind, who is like Jesus. And with this as well, because dads often have the propensity to underfunction in family life, to compensate, many mums feel the pressure to overfunction, to be the everything woman. The, and it's not even a great contraction, the entrepreneur mum, right? 
where you are like a, a leader in your field of work at the same time as being a really present and dear friend, at the same time as being a really devoted mum, at the same time as being a really present and loving and understanding wife, at the same time as doing all these things, going on many overseas exotic holidays and having an Instagram fo- a feed to track you the whole way, wearing lots of beige because your kids are perfectly behaved, <laughs> having matching outfits for all of them, and you live this perfectly serene, incredibly busy life. It's impossible. It's a lie. And many moms just feel like they're just failing all the time. Like, I'm just not doing nearly enough. Can I just encourage you, moms, just remember the story of the gospel. That it was, you did not do enough to meet with God. You did not do enough to meet his standards. He came and met you with grace. And he will meet you with enough grace to continue wherever you are at in your season right now. It matters that we be grounded in the gospel story. And for this, there's a couple of things that are helpful in this. One is that as parents, you will have to continue to work on your marriage. The temptation will be to do life side by side. And we talked about this a little bit in week one, that couples tend to do life shoulder to shoulder. And you need to spend time face to face. And that's really hard once you have kids. There is so much that you could be focusing on together that you can fail to work on your marriage. If only we had a course that could help you, such as the Gospel-Centered Marriage course that you can sign up for this week. It's been great hearing your thoughts on it so far. It's not too late to do it. But here's a thought. There are, in that, I only, only realized there's five sections to that Gospel-Centered Marriage stuff, right? So five different areas covering like foundations, finances, sex, all, that, all up it's like 30 talks. Imagine if you subbed out one Netflix night, which is not enriching a marriage, for one of those talks for just half of the year, once every two weeks. Imagine what that would do for your marriage. Anyway, just as something to keep in mind. But continue to work on your marriage. But also, if the other person is under-functioning, or even just not there, or not a believer, or whatever it is, to be encouraged that God has grace enough for you, and that there is a church community here for you to be a part of as well. And we would love for you guys to see yourselves as older brothers and sisters in Christ, even if you, you are not in a stage where you have kids or are thinking about kids, that there are kids around who you'll be older brothers and sisters to. And that's an immense privilege. One of the biggest privileges of being a part of a youth group was I got to see that older brother and sister relationship play out. Because when kids turn to teenagers, they start looking less to their parents and more to the people who are just above them to see how does a competent person navigate this next phase of life. And you get to be that for them. And so if your spouse, partner, whatever just isn't there, you have a church family to be a part of as well. Because we'd love you to do that. And the last one is this. In Nehemiah 9, it says, The joy of the Lord is my strength. It is the case that when my soul is happy in God, when I'm satisfied in Him, I'm a much better parent. You just, for whatever, you are just sharp. You make good decisions. You're able to be fun at the same time, set clear boundaries. Things align often when, when my soul is satisfied in the Lord. So I would say make it your business, and it is the hardest phase of life to do it, make your business to meet with God every day. George Mueller said that that, the first duty of my day is that my soul be made happy in the Lord. It is never more true than in the phase where you're raising little kids right through to young adults. Let's pray that God would strengthen us for the task. Let's pray. Father God, we praise you. Do you show us what it is is meant to be a parent, that you as father 
reveal to us what it is like to love kids who are wayward. And Father, we pray that we would love like you have loved us, that we'd forgive like you have forgiven us, that we would encourage like you have encouraged us, that we would instruct like you have instructed us. In all this, Father, we pray that we'd remember that your words are higher than our words and your thoughts are higher than our thoughts, that your design for parenting and for marriage is good. And so we pray that you would make us mums and dads after your own heart, strong in the Lord, who follow Jesus with all our heart, empowered by your spirit to do what you have called us to do. And Father, we pray that you would do this not for our glory, but for yours. And we pray this for the sake of your holy name. Amen.